Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. guys are here, and that matters to me. And I'm really excited to uh, jump into our text today and, and learn and glean uh, what God has for us. So if you guys have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12, about three quarters of the way through those paper Bibles. Pull out your phones, pull it up on the Bible app. If it, you have the Bible underneath your seat uh, and you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. And it should be on page... 625, page 625. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12. All right. So we've been in the series called Bad Advice, the Gospel According to Satan. Um, The gospel, the true gospel, gospel just means good news, is the good news about Jesus Christ. The fact that he loved us so much that he would come, put on flesh and bone, move into the neighborhood, show us who he is, die a death that we deserve, live, uh, resurrect to new life, and give us eternal life when we put our faith in him. That's the gospel, the good news, according to Jesus. And so when we say the gospel according to Satan is bad advice, he wants us to believe lies that then play themselves out in our lives to create chaos and dysfunction and disorder and brokenness. Right, Because when we believe the gospel, it doesn't mean that life is easy, but it brings shalom, it brings wholeness, it brings newness of life, it brings and eases tensions in our relationships. Right, Then the enemy's advice, or the gospel according to Satan, is meant to do just the opposite. And so we've started every single week by kind of telling you the lie that we've been addressing. And so this week, the lie that we are addressing is this. Your life is measured by what you own. Your life consists of your possessions, how much you can store up, build up for your purposes, your uses, your desires, your comforts, your wants, your needs. And it's interesting, right? Like when we think about these lies, right? They're not always super explicit, right? It doesn't like, like Satan doesn't just show up in bodily form and and speak these lies into our lives, but they are so subversive. They start to just get into our consciousness. And, and one of the, the ways that we do this or that we, that we receive these lies is just through popular culture, the way that the world sees life. And it was interesting because I was at Fifth Third Bank this week. Fifth Third is not evil, uh, but what I'm about to show you is a lie. <laughs> and I was up at the teller uh, 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 desk and I saw a brochure for this. Uh, retirement University from Fifth Third Bank. And, it, and, and the motto was, build the life that you have always wanted. As if you can, as if if you invest enough money or store up enough money, then you will get that life that you've always wanted. And there's so many factors that make this a lie, including the fact that we can't guarantee 
anything in life, let alone the markets and the value of our retirement. But the real promise underlying this little brochure that promises that you can build the life that you've always wanted is that if you do these certain things, if you store up enough, then you will be happy, then you will be satisfied, then you will be secure, then you will be in control, right? And our world lives in this frenzy of trying to get enough, to be secure enough, to be comfortable enough, to feel valuable enough, which never ends up being enough because Satan wants you to believe that you are what you own, that your life is measured by what you have, that your life significance is attached to the things, the inanimate objects in your life. And I believe that there may be no better passage to address this than the one that we are in this morning in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus's ministry by this point is barreling forward. He has started his journey to Jerusalem where he knows he will be crucified and then rise again. And at this point, he has made such a fuss with all of his miracles and teachings that although he gets away to be alone with his disciples at this point in the story, there is crowds. Luke tells us of thousands gathered around Jesus. And as his fame increases, he continues to speak truth into the world. And then this happens in verse 13. Then someone called out from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to defied our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he told them a story, a parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. And then he said, I know I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough room to store all of my wheat and other goods. And I will sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Sit back, eat, drink, be merry, grab a margarita. Go buy a new car, whatever, fill in the blank, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, (laughs) you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you have stored up and worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Here's the lie. Life is measured by what you own. Here's the truth. Life is measured by a rich relationship with God. That is our measuring stick as Christ followers. So there's this huge crowd gathered. And at this point, thousands and thousands of people are there. And somebody yells out to Jesus, hey, Jesus, my brother, he's stealing from me. He's taken all of the estate. Tell him to split it with me. And you couldn't start with a more relevant dilemma because inheritances split families. They destroy families. I've watched this happen. I can count personally on my left hand 
occasions where I have literally heard these words come out of other people's mouths, speaking of their families. I have witnessed inheritances and estates, money, stuff, just obliterate relationships in families and and friendships and lives. I've watched people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on lawyer fees just to get what is rightfully theirs. And when Jesus hears this, what does he do? Jesus, tell my brother to split the estate with me. Friend, he answers the question, who made me judge? over you to decide such things as that. Could you imagine getting that response from Jesus? What? Tell him, come on, tell him to give me the estate. Guard against every type of greed. No, no, Jesus, you don't understand. He's stealing. You care about stealing. You're Jesus. Life is not made up of what you own. And see, when we come to the big level, when we come to the text, when we come to the Bible, we always got to ask the question, why? We got to come to the Bible. We got to ask the question, why? Because I think sometimes we, co- we come in here and we go, okay, yeah, Jesus died and, and he rose for me. But we forget that Jesus lived a life and he teaches us how to live our lives. And so why does Jesus speak this way, it's because of course Jesus could settle this issue. He is the moral judge of the universe. He is Lord of all. He of course cares about stealing. He cares about injustice, but he knows that in midst of this crowd, if he answers them with a temporary solution for a temporal problem, then he will speak something that is not true about him, which is he is the eternal king of the universe. And he cares far more about the human heart than he does about a little dispute like this. Because he knows that if he can solve our human heart problems, he can change the way that we behave. And so Jesus just pulls out like the scalpel and he pulls the, 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 the skin back as he makes the incision and he opens up the rib cage and he exposes the beating but broken heart of men and women with this brilliant parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops and he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. I mean, notice the brilliance of Jesus with me. He starts with a parable that would have been much more understood in that agrarian society, but we can probably understand it too when we really think about it because when you think about a farmer's profession, so much of what a farmer is and produces is completely and utterly out of his control. The quality of the soil, the weather, rain or drought, disease, the actions of the animals, natural disasters, the abundance of seed or lack thereof, different seasons. There is a huge majority of things that are completely outside of this farmer's control, and yet he is rich, not based off of simply his own work, but of the circumstances in his life that have been favorable to him. And his response is, what should I do with my crops, my wealth? I did this. 
And at its core, this is what sin is. Sin is just turning in on ourselves. I, me, mine, my, I'm a self-made man. I deserve this. And see, greed and covetousness begins with a fundamental misunderstanding about how the world works. Let me ask you a question. How self-made are you? How self-made are you? Seriously. Because this goes for everyone. You didn't choose your parents, your skin color, the year that you were born. You didn't choose the location that you were born, your height, your looks, your talents, your natural giftings, your IQ. So much, not all, but so much of who you and I are, are completely and utterly out of our control. And we are tempted to think when we have success in life or money in life, I did this. I did it. And then you can just see this narcissistic attitude continue in this parable. He just keeps turning in on himself and in on himself. Look at verse 18. Then he said, I know I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store up my wheat and other goods. And I will sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink. And be merry. This dude is speaking to himself about talking to himself as his future self. (laughs) You see the brilliance of Jesus? This dude is just, it's me, baby. I did this. It's my stuff. And if I got enough and I build big enough barns, then I can sit back and all be merry. And we don't use that language. I'll be merry. But what does it mean? If we store up enough for retirement, then I can relax, hang out, finally enjoy life. If I have enough, I'll feel comfortable. If I have enough, I'll feel secure. If I have enough, I'll be in control. If I have enough, I'll be safe. If I have enough, uh, I can answer the question, do I really matter? If I have enough, I can purchase the affection of others. People will respect me. See, that's the promise. That's the lie. I will be merry. I will be blank. Money promises so much, but money itself isn't the problem. The enemy's goal is simply for you to take God and replace him and the trust that you have in him with anything else other than him. And then I'll sit back. Eat, drink. You have stored away for years to come. The problem is, Henry David Thoreau says this, although he's just stealing from Jesus, the price of anything is the amount of life that you are willing to exchange for it. The the price for anything is just the the amount of life that you're willing to exchange for this, which is exactly Jesus' point in verses 20 through 21, because he says, but God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night, then who will get everything that you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Life is not measured by how much you own or what you achieve. Life is measured 
in a rich relationship with God. Don't you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, you are exchanging the one invaluable resource that you have in life, your time, for something that doesn't guarantee happiness even if you were to get it, but you may die. Guess what? Time's up. Jesus is saying, you fool. You might die this very night and you've given away all of your precious time laboring and striving just to feel like you've built up enough. That was foolish. And I talked with several friends that are in the business world this week and you don't have to be in the business world to know these lies that pervade our society. But but I was just like, talk to me about some of the stuff and how this just inundates what we believe. You know, you are in the corporate setting. I'm not in that setting. So just tell me. And he told me that he worked for one of the big four accounting firms at the earlier on in his career. And, and he witnessed a lot of the executives. This is not a blanket statement about executives, but it was just the case for him that many of them made an unbelievable amount of money, but they worshiped their career to a point to earn that money that their entire relationships in their lives were destroyed. They didn't have relationships with their kids, several marriages, whatever the case may be. It had destroyed their actual life from the inside out. And he would talk to these executives. And when they would respond with why they still continued to do what they did, they would say this phrase that I'm sure we've all heard. I've got golden handcuffs on. I can't take them off. They're gold plated. I remember growing up, my dad would talk to me about that. He loved his job. Sometimes jobs are just jobs. It's okay if you don't love your job. But he loved his job and he would talk about his friends who had golden handcuffs as well. And as I was thinking about that phrase, I'm like, should we really be pumped about golden handcuffs? Handcuffs are for prisoners or slaves. And we're just like, but, but, but they're golden and they're going to provide down the road. If I just, just enslave myself to this pursuit of money, then I will have enough. Take off the handcuffs. You do not exist for your job. Your job exists for you as a means to worship and serve Jesus. And you might say, well, okay, that's fine. But but, but if I store up enough, then even if I don't get to enjoy that wealth, my kids will be set for life. It's another lie. My kids will be set for life. What are they set up for? Are they set up? Are they set up for rich relationships with others? Are they set up for a meaningful life? Are they set up for, most importantly, a deep and foundational relationship with the God who created them? What are they set up for? Because if you can't answer yes to those questions then money, even if it's copious amounts just poured out on your children when you die, will only inflame, exasperate, and make worse the wounds and the deep hurt and the lack of fulfillment that your children already have. And you might say, well, maybe I don't believe that anymore, but if I have enough money, then... My life will really 
matter. And I will be significant. And people will love me. But I want you to notice that the brilliance of this parable goes even deeper because this farmer is completely alone. There is nobody else. I will enjoy by myself. And and, and this just goes perfectly with the stereotype that we have of uber wealthy people who are super successful monetarily, but by the time that they actually achieve that money have a completely lonely life because now they have no one to share it with. They have no one to serve it with because they've put on the golden handcuffs or they have believed the lie that I will set my children's up, children up for success. Well, what success? And see, I'm convinced that there's many people who walk around in the world, including myself at times, to just throw myself under the bus, that just believe that the greatest tragedy in the world would be to be poor. (laughs) Jesus says, you know what's a much, much greater tragedy? A wealthy man or woman that has stored up plenty but does not have a rich relationship with God. Satan wants you to waste your life seeking to build the life that you've always wanted. Jesus wants you to take him into your life because he is as Mark talked to us last week about the way, the truth, and the life. Life is not measured by what you own or achieve. Life is measured by a rich relationship with God. This week I've had an opportunity to think about death a whole lot more than I normally would. One of my close friends just lost an uncle And it is the seventh member of that family that has died in the last two years. So I started thinking about that. And then I thought about the meaning of of, of life and just how short it can be and how quickly it can go. And I thought about my life and and what I want it to be about. And and I thought about a rich relationship with God. And and, and when I thought about being rich towards God, if being greedy is turning in on ourselves, then being rich towards God is opening up ourselves like a flower opens its petals to the sun. Just every part of our life is yours, God. Our careers opening up, our wallets opening up, our resources opening up, our children opening up our lives. We say they're all yours, God. And as I was reflecting on people that were rich towards God in my life that have set that example for me, I couldn't help but think of my dear friend, Jen Hill. Many of you know Jen. Many of you love Jen. I love Jen. And tragically, last year, Jen Hill was gone. And she went home to be with the Lord. And I got to witness a life that was rich towards God. And then last week, I got to just stand up here 
as little mini-me, Izzy Hill, grabbed the microphone and said, I am here to put my stake in the ground for Jesus. I love him. I want to worship him. I want to obey him. And I want my life to count for God. And a lot of that was a result of her mommy living a life that was rich towards God. Because Jen passed a lot of things on to a lot of people and we love her for that, but nothing was more great than that because Jen didn't take anything with her out of this world, but you know what she will have? She'll have Izzy with her. She'll have Izzy with her because of her rich relationship with God eternity with her daughter. Do you believe that? That's what we believe. That's why we come in here. And in light of that, you just have to ask yourself, like, what are, what prices are we paying for the things in our life? Like, is the amount of life that we're giving up for the things in our life worth that? How meaningful would that life even be if you did get that thing? Jesus would say, don't waste it. Don't waste it. It can be gone just like that. And so like now it's like, okay, great. This is depressing. What do we do with this? Like, like what, how, do, how do we take this? And, and I want to draw out three quick applications if you want to live a rich life in God. Now this isn't everything. This isn't exhaustive. But as far as this passage goes, here's three quick applications. Number one. Meditate on death. Think about it. Number two, practice gratitude. And number three, steward what God gives you well. First, meditate on death. You know, we've so compartmentalized death in our, in our culture that, that in video games, in movies, it's always exceptionalized. Like people only die because a train hit them. And when we do that, we, it just shows that we, we, we really have an obsession with death, but we don't really know how to handle it. And, and so the way that we handle it is we, we, we talk about it in, in movies and video games. We talk about it in popular culture, but we make it something that would never happen to us. But death is ordinary. We all are heading towards death. And I heard a pastor once say that one of the best things that church architects could do going forward is to... Start building church graveyards again, right next to the church. So when you walk in and you saw grandma and grandpa six feet under, it would change the way that you worshiped in light of eternity. And you know who talks a whole lot about death? Jesus talked all the time about death, so much about death that his disciples, even at times, would get frustrated with him and say, stop. But Jesus was comfortable talking about death because he knew that his death was a doorway into resurrection life and the disciples couldn't see that. So when I tell you to meditate on death as a Christian, we need to meditate on what death means for a Christian, which means that there is a resurrection coming. Do you believe that? 
That Jesus actually takes death. He defeats it so that we don't have to live in fear of death anymore. Death is simply a doorway into new life with Christ. And eternity with Christ, by the way, doesn't start when you die. It starts the moment you decide to bring the kingdom ethic into your life. When you decide to bring Christ into your life. And that's why we don't have to be greedy. Do you understand? Because if this life is all there is, Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection, we should be pitied above all other people. If there isn't a resurrection, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. He says that. And don't you just love the brutal honesty of the Bible? The Bible says that if the resurrection didn't happen, do whatever you want. Build up your kingdom because this is all there is. Get yours while you can get yours. YOLO. But if this isn't all there is, then this means that this life matters because the next life matters. Number one, meditate on death. Number two, practice gratitude. Part of the tragedy of this parable is that the farmer doesn't realize all the wealth that he has accumulated is from God in the first place. And that's not just tragic because he's hoarding it, because he, but because he's losing out on the joy of actually enjoying a gift with God, enjoying the gift with God. You know, I've used this illustration before, but when I get my daughter's gifts, oftentimes they'll take that gift and I no longer can look at that gift, let alone touch that gift. And I certainly can't play with them with that gift. Right? Because it's just like our tendency is to take the gift. And, and, and like it just breaks my heart because as a dad, I'm like, I, I gave this to you. I'm not going to take it back. I just want to witness you enjoy the gift that I just gave you. And Jesus addresses this. He says, we don't have to worry about our possessions because we are more valuable than the birds of the air. We are more valuable than the flowers of the field. And don't you know your father cares for them and they don't toil nor reap. And how much more valuable are you to God than them? He wants you to enjoy his stuff, but he wants you to enjoy the stuff that he has provided in your life as a means to enjoy him. And I want Rama and Noel to enjoy the stuff that I get them as a means to enjoy our relationship. And gratitude is a doorway to joy. Maybe you got to start writing down the things that you're grateful for in the morning. Maybe when you take a bite of lunch after this, you just pause for a second. I'm so bad at this. Just pause for a second instead of just shoving it in as fast as you can, right? And and just thank God for the flavors and and, and for, for food that sustains us. Maybe when you open up your door, whether it's an apartment or a house, after this service, you go home and you just look for one second and take it all in and say, thank you, God. I can't believe you gave me this. Or when you drive home and your kids are screaming in the back of the car and you just want to be like, I wish I didn't have them. You instead go, thank you, God. And thank you for this car. Gratitude can seriously change the way that your heart operates. And we need to practice it. And Jesus was grateful. Jesus was even grateful for his own death. Do you know how you guard your heart against greed? Gratitude. And if you have gratitude, you guard your heart against against greed. 
Lastly, steward what God gives you well. Meditate on death. Practice gratitude. Steward what God gives you well. The Bible and the biblical worldview knows nothing of personal ownership. Obviously, on this side of eternity, we own things. But the Bible would say we are stewards of things. That we are simply given responsibility for that which has been given to us. And it is our responsibility to glorify, serve, and enjoy God through the things that he has given us. I have a couple friends and they work in real estate. Uh, They don't go to movement. uh, And they took over their dad's, or they're in the process of taking over their dad's conglomerate real estate business. And they were, we were having breakfast a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about this whole shift that they had had in their mentality when they came to know the Lord. You know, they came to know the Lord, and then they were in business, and we're like, we're going to just make all of this money, and then we'll just be able to give a whole lot to God. That's what they thought that God wanted from them. And then they grew in their relationship with the Lord, and they continue to grow, and they continue to grow. And one day... They felt like this thing just completely switched in the way that they looked at their lives, their business, their money. And they felt the Lord say, I just want you to, you, to honor me and glorify me with this business. And so they went in prayer and they were like, God, if we radically change the way that we run this business, we might lose clients. If we change the way that we run this business, it might not be the same. We might not make the same amount of money. We might not be able to give enough. Don't you want us to do that? And they kind of wrestled with God back and forth. And God was just like, very gently in prayer, just give me it all. Give me it all. And so they said the next day, they started a dream about how they could change the way that they operated their business. And everything became a means to serve the Lord. The way that they talk with their employees, their code of ethics, everything was about serving God. They gave God everything and they held it out there and they said, okay, God, we're going to steward this well. Everything that you have is a vessel to serve you. And they just waited. And you know what? The Lord blessed their endeavor, not simply because their business grew, which by the way, is not a one-to-one equation. This is not a prosperity gospel. If he so chooses not to bless your business, that is God's business. But he blessed them. But more than the monetary blessing that came was the blessing of complete and utter freedom for them. They were not owned by their business anymore. They weren't even owned by making enough money to give away their money They were stewards now of this thing that God had given them for his glory. And so today's message is not feel bad about your house, feel bad about your car, feel bad about your retirement. There's nothing wrong with saving, but how can you fundamentally change the way that you look at the things that you have and use them to enjoy and serve God? Because Jesus did not waste his life. He did not give 10%. He gave it all. And Jesus didn't just meditate on death. He actually died a death for you and for me to have a doorway into new life. 
And if we say that we believe in a resurrection, then we need to live as if that is true. And the way that we live as if that is true, and we show that we're just weird to the world, is that we're not enslaved to money. Because when we're not enslaved to money, we show the world that there is another life that we await, and that everything we have is just a temporary responsibility that God has given to us to be generous, to live in enjoyment and gratitude and well done, good and faithful servant will be the words out of Jesus's mouth when you meet him on that day, if you steward it well. Let's be a church that says, you, 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 Lord. I want it all for you instead of I, me, mine. Now, life is not measured by what you own. Life is measured by a rich relationship with God. And we have a prayer that I want us to finish with. It's from Psalm 39, four through seven. And I want us to speak this out loud with each other First service, it was a whisper. I want this to be loud. And let's say it together. This is a beautiful just time of confession where we can come to the Lord and say, this is what I want my life to look like. Ready? Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Amen. Heavenly Father, our hope is in you. Firmly put in you, Lord. Help continue to just do what you need to do in our hearts so that we can give back to you what you have given to us with our lives, our finances, our children, whatever you've given us, Lord, help us to be good stewards. Lord, we confess that we aren't always good stewards. And so we look to the cross and your forgiveness and grace for us. The fact that there is freedom in you, that you have given us even grace when we don't live this out well. And that that grace and that that forgiveness would actually motivate us to continue to turn and to grow as generous people for your sake and your glory. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.